Oh, hello. Welcome to episode 122 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. As always, I'm joined by Mary, a woman who is trying her best to keep her graduate GPA high above sea level. I am merely a sunken trash barge named Darren. Land ho, Mary, land ho. How are we doing? Sunken trash barge. Well, gotta bring it sometimes. Gotta bring I mean, I guess barges factor into our story tonight. A little bit, a little Maybe. bit. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Is we got we got some stuff to talk about. But before we get started, I never forget. I'm going to be a gracious host, and as always, I'm going to ask you, Mary, that very important question, which is, of course, what are you drinking? I'm drinking Haze Glare by uh, New Belgium. It's an IPA, and I'm drinking it out of just a generic Civil War mug that I got at Gettysburg. So. That's nothing exciting tonight, but the beer's pretty good. The mug's pretty cool. Okay. So. How about you? What are you drinking? Oh, God. Thank you so much for asking. I appreciate it. Well, I'm polite. I'm drink- you are. You are. You are. You are not annoying at all. You're not an annoying lady. <laughs> I am drinking Plymouth Rocks IPA. It's a local IPA here from, guess what, Plymouth. And I'm drinking out of my Boston College National Champions hockey mug because it's a big hockey weekend around these parts, Mary, my, my college world. So we got some stuff to, uh, to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. But in any case... We got more important things to talk about here, Mary. We, we do, we do. And, you know, for the first time in a while, you know, we're going to be going seaward in, in this episode. And we're going to be talking about one of the most enigmatic and incredible stories of the entire Civil War, the plight of the Southern submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Yes, and I like that you said H.L. Hunley because I've, I think we both heard it called the CSS Hunley before, but that's one of the myths about it. It's actually called the HL Hunley, which is after one of its inventors. It is. What's great about this, we talk all the time about talking about people and stories. I've spent a a few few days of my life sitting at the bar in uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, Mary, and people love to talk about the Hunley. It's one of their favorite things to talk about, and there's a lot of misconceptions about it. And it's quite a bit now, you know, we got to take it back a little bit about how we, how, where we're going to go, right? Mm-hmm. You know, history is going to show that on February 17th of 1864, that this H.L. Hunley will become the first successful combat submarine in world history after it sank the USS Housatonic near Charleston, South Carolina, before vanishing. And it would stay vanished until 1995. Now, mm-hmm. you know, we'll talk about the mission and talk about all the stuff that went down with it, but and, and its disappearance, its eventual discovery, and all that. But before that, we got to talk about why the Hunley was built and why anyone would attempt such a brazen act, just an adventure to start with. Now, if you remember, Mary, you've probably forgotten, but when the Civil War began, Washington realized that despite its eventual military superiority, uh, the key to putting down the rebellion was really by limiting the Southern economy. Mm-hmm. And at the war's outset, the South's lifeblood was the export of cotton, really overseas. We yeah. talked we talk about the blockade. We talked about a lot yeah, of this stuff. Yeah, we had Alexander Rose on almost exactly a year ago it to was. Time, record. Time I think flies. it was getting close yeah. to our 100th episode. Now, just, just to draw a comparison, in 1860, Mary, um, the port of New Orleans, which we're going to talk a little bit about, that city alone exported $220 million worth of cotton. That is, that is $8.1 billion, with a B, in today's money, that's how important wow. cotton was to that economy. Crazy. Abraham Lincoln, you may have heard of him, Mary. The guy with the hat. Okay. 
got a weird looking beard and he's got a nice hat. <laughs> he, he quickly understood the importance of keeping the Confederacy isolated from foreign markets. So on April 19th, 1861, Lincoln is going to sign the proclamation of blockade against Southern ports, and which basically was an order for Union forces to begin a blockade of mm-hmm. all major Confederate ports. Not a very creative name, but that's what that's what he called it. He will put in place a, a plan by a guy named General-in-Chief, Winfield Scott, who was going to close off all Confederate ports, preventing ships uh, really exporting goods primarily, you know, primarily cotton, mm-hmm. and, and as well as stopping ships from entering southern ports to deliver cargo. He called it the Anaconda Plan, Mary, and it covered over 3,500 miles of coastline in 12 southern ports, okay? Now, we talked before in previous episodes, these blockade runners from places like England, you know, they were they were successful running the blockade, yep. the impact, but the impact was strong as the war went on. It got stronger and stronger. They began to starve the South of supplies while crippling their economy by cutting down the cotton trade by over 95% by war's end. So it was a slow, you know, yep. like, like, a, like a more like a python there than I yep. caught it, but it, it slowly strangled them out. Finding a way to break this naval stranglehold um, was by far the most important thing in the South of their economy. And they became more and more desperate as the war went on to find a way to break this, right? Now, if you remember the beginning, Mary, the Union, when the war began, had just 42 ships. That's all they had. But it grew to 671 by the time the war went on. And they they invented things like the ironclads. and, And by the time the war finished... The United States had one of the strongest navies in the entire world. Yeah. That's what the war did, yeah. right? And, and, you know, and to try to help combat this, the South is going to try to build their own navy, but they're going to rely on privateers. And this is really to help run the blockades, and, and that's really what they wanted to do, but also find a way to fight and combat the Union Navy whenever they possibly mm-hmm. could, right? The Confederate government, as well as wealthy Southerners, were offering privateers upwards of fifty thousand dollars, over one point eight yes. million dollars in today's money. It was quite to... a lucrative business, and I think some of them even started to be like, "Well, actually, we want this much." In a way, they're kind of like pirates who are paid by the government. Well, I that's guess, the, in like, a way that's, like, that's what a privateer is, Mary. But oh. anyway, okay, so <laughs> but you're right. Oh my God, right? But in any case. <laughs> It, it's a you're right though. It's a lot of money. Yeah. That's a lot of DQ blizzards we're talking here. Okay, <laughs> quite a bit. Now, I'm sure pure patriotism, you know, helped some people on the cause yep. a lot as well. But building a vessel and raising crew to sink a warship was mucho dinero. And if you could do it, you would certainly try. Okay, mm-hmm. enter a man named Horace Lawson Hunley. Mm-hmm. Now, Hunley was born December 29th of 1823 in Sumner, Tennessee, before he moves to New Orleans, mm-hmm. right? Where he becomes and, a lawyer. He and... does. He studies. He, he joins the bar 1849. He's going to practice in New Orleans. Eventually, he becomes a member of the Louisiana State Legislature. Mm-hmm. Seems like we talk about lawyers all the time with this. Who I know. That? I was just going to say, like, John Brown Gordon was a lawyer. Uh, mm-hmm. Hunley's a lawyer. Like, oh, was. I think uh, Francis Barlow was a lawyer. But here's the thing about Hunley. Not only was he a lawyer, he was a dreamer since he was little, mm-hmm. okay? He wanted to be considered in history a great man, somebody nobody would ever forget. That's what he wanted. 
He carried a notebook wherever he went. And when a great idea popped in his head, he'd pull out the book, he'd write it down nice. in his ledger. That's what he did. So in the fall of 1861, two other men from New Orleans, a guy named James McClintock and Baxter Wilson, they were coming up with an idea on how to make some money. And they're both they kind of tech I guess you could call them tech savvy for their time as well. Like uh, Baxter Watson was a steam, ga steam gauge manufacturer. So these guys are kind of bringing together their brains and their talents yeah. to come up with something that they could invent that would also right. help the Confederate war effort. Right. And so, and they came up with this idea for a secret underwater boat that could sink Union ships and make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And so Hunley heard of this and he decides to reach out to them. Now, here's the thing, Mary. Let me ask you a question. If, you, if you're going to do such a thing, a covert act, right, you needed money and you needed secrecy, okay? Mm -hmm. If you wanted both, who would you reach out to? Who would you seek? Uh, I don't know. You'd seek out your Freemason friends. Yes, that's right. And that's what they did. <laughs> oh, Hunley, was the, Hunley was the secretary mm -hmm. of the Mount Moriah Lodge number 59, while McClintock and Wilson, and Watson rather, we're both Masons from the Mobile Lodge number 40 in Alabama. There's now, another Mason that's going to factor into our well, story. Well, there's, there's a lot of Masons that are going to factor into this story, okay? Since all were private citizens, uh, basically, they were, they were basically Masons coming together to bring as many they could and to create the secret plot as time was going on against this wartime enemy, this blockade. As it went on, there are some people in the Masonic world who consider the H.L. Hunley expedition to be the Confederate version of a Boston Tea Party. Wow. That's what this thing turned into, right? Mm -hmm. Hunley, McClintock, and Watson's prototype, they're going to build a boat. It's going to be called the Pioneer. Mm -hmm. And it was successfully tested in the Mississippi River, as well as Lake Pontchartrain in Louisiana. Now, again, we're, we're not talking about, you know, the love boat here, Mary. This, this, no. this, is, a, this, is, a, this is a tough thing. It's, it's a, a small very basic, boat. I would say it's a very basic bitch boat. Like, and these, the three of them, when they got together, they had started experimenting. Like, you know, they were looking at steam engines, electricity, all this other stuff, like kind of way ahead of their time. But yeah, this like Pioneer was a three-man boat and it was considered to be the world's first submarine, really. Well, they're going to test it, a three-man thing and they're going to get out there and they're going to test it out. And they're going to actually get a little too close to some Union ships, mm -hmm. and they're going to ultimately sink it themselves just before, before it gets caught. They just thought that this thing was not ready. So while this is all going on, don't forget, too, the Union is converging on New Orleans, mm -hmm. right? And, and all these privateers, they're going to scoot down to Mobile, Alabama to get away from this oncoming Union troops, right? In their hands... They have blueprints for a second boat that they don't want to get caught. And they are going to build a second submarine at, the, at a place called a Park and Lions Machine Shop back in Mobile, Alabama. Now, you mentioned before the technology. These guys are getting better and better. This new second boat, okay, it's going to be bigger. They're going to need a bigger boat. Oh, See what I did there, <laughs> <Jaws> right? <reference. laughs> Adding, and this is where they're going to add some more of their friends now, some of their brothers, Thomas Park and Thomas Lyons to the crew. They're going to build a boat called the American Diver, which is 36 feet long and big enough to hold machinery and a larger crew. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, these engineers at Park and Lyons Machine Shop, they tried to use an electric magnetic engine, 
you know, to, to propel the vessel to get yeah. it going. But they could, of course, they couldn't get it to yeah, work. This is when they were trying steam and all this other stuff, and right? they just couldn't get it to work for them. So they fall back on the on the old, you know, the old standby. The hand crank yep. is what they put in this thing. And by mid January of 1863, they were ready to test out this new this new little boat of theirs. Uh, and to try to attack a blockade ship. They're going to give it a shot. Now, of course, it's not going to work. The American yep. diver is going to sink quickly on its maiden voyage. And although no lives were lost at this one, the second attempt at a submarine failed. And no one really knows where it is. As a matter of fact, it still sits on the bottom of the ocean off the Alabama coastline. Interesting. Right found it. I'm surprised they haven't tried to go after it after they found the Hunley. That would be a pretty cool no, find. That is true. But you know what they say, Mary? The third time's a charm. Yes. I've heard that before, okay? <laughs> With the, the third time's a charm. That is really something. And they're going to bring another Freemason, a guy named William Alexander from the Mobile Lodge. Mm-hmm. And he's going to join the crew. And they're going to work on this new third boat, which is going to become to be known as the fish boat. That's what it's going to be called. Not a lot of creativity. No. No, not a lot of creativity. Oh, no. The, crea- the, uh, the naming department was uh, not full of... No, I don't think so. Now, Alexander, William Alexander, I mentioned, Mm -hmm. he's a mechanical engineer from England, of all places, and he has some military experience. He was a lieutenant with the 21st Alabama Infantry. So finally bringing in in troops now with this. He also brought in a fifth crew member, an injured lieutenant, also from the 21st Alabama, who was back in Mobile rehabbing, Mm -hmm. named George E. Dixon. Yep. Now, Dixon was a Royal Archmason, okay, as well as a member of that Mobile Lodge. Now, Dixon is a former ship engineer, okay, and he's going to, he fights the battle of Shiloh. Yeah. And before leaving for battle, his girlfriend, a woman named Queenie Bennis is her name. Queenie? It, it, Queenie. It, all, the, all the creativity came from the nicknames, apparently, yeah. instead of the boat. But Queenie Bennett gave him a good luck charm, a shiny yes. $20 gold coin. Now, while Dixon is at, um, is at Shiloh, he's going to be shot in the leg. Mm-hmm. And the ball is actually going to hit him in the pocket, and it's going to hit that gold coin, Oof. which was in his pocket. Yep. Now, it, the, it's, it basically saved his leg. The bullet's going to hit it and, and injure him. He's going to have to rehab. Yep. But it saves the leg, maybe even saves his life. But it puts a dent in the coin. Now, like I said, the wound did require he go back to Mobile yep. and rehab. Um, but the coin did prove to be a lucky charm. And Dixon kept that bent coin with him everywhere he went afterwards. On the coin, he had inscribed on it, my life preserver. Yeah. To, to remind him, this coin literally saved his life. That's that how he felt. It's such a, like, I don't know, that's so haunting. <laughs> You know oh, it absolutely is. <laughs> and it's during this rehab that he's going to be recruited and joined by his Masonic brothers in the submarine plot. Now, Hunley is quickly going to find out that this financing of this new boat is a little above his pay grade. Yes. And he's going to need partners, maybe even a life coach. We don't know. But he's going to need <laughs> he's going to basically need to find some more people. He's going to turn to two people. Mm-hmm. A guy named Dr. John Fretwell and Edgar Singer, yep. both from Masonic Lodge in Texas. And interestingly, uh, Edward Singer is the nephew of the guy who invented the Singer sewing machine. That too. is, that is so true. So inventions and creativity 
um, runs in the family. And these are all, as you said, like they're all Masons and they're all getting to get like, you know, they're kind of putting, I think they're like very tech savvy, as I said, for their time that they're able mm-hmm. to do all this stuff that is, has not been done before. Well, the thing about Edgar Singer is not only is he good at sewing clothes, Mary, okay, he's also got, he's also got a dark side. He's a member of a covert ring of, of Southerners called the, C, the Singer Secret Service Corps. Yeah. Say that three times fast. This secret group basically built and deployed torpedoes in Mobile Bay. Mm-hmm. The very same torpedoes that Navy Captain David Farragut would later famously say, damn the torpedoes, yeah. full speed ahead. These are Singer's torpedoes he's talking about. Hunley himself is going to kick in another five grand. And Singer is going to match the five, five grand to build this third submarine. And they're also going to get an additional $5,000 from members of Singer's Masonic Lodge, a guy named John Brayman, mm-hmm. Robert Dunn, and Gus Whitney. Gus Whitney is a relative of Eli Whitney, the cotton gin event, by the Interesting. way. So these guys, it's all kind of comes together. Yeah. This new submarine, which we said before will be called the originally be called the fish boat, was much bigger than the previous two vessels. Mm-hmm. This one was 40 feet long and four feet in diameter. Now, the thing about it, it's made of 100% recycled materials, Mary, yeah. as the sub was built basically with pieces from an old iron boiler from a yep. steamship. So they back then, recycled back then, yep. right? And that's what they did. There's custom cast iron fittings on it. It's going to be powered by a hand crank. So, um, and the ballast tanks could be filled with water or pumped with hand pumps for submerging or raising out of the water. So it seems like very basic technology compared to what we have now. But back then it was like kind of a state of the art um, for it. And it weighs seven and a half tons. As you said, it's very small. It's like, and like inside it's like four foot three inches tall. So, and that we're going to get into another myth of the Hunley and that's that the crew all to be short, which as we're going to talk about, they didn't have to be, but it's very tiny. You think some of the submarines today, this is like, makes the other submarines today seem like the Titanic compared to like what this little thing was. This, this thing basically looks like a cigar is what it really does. It's, it's run by seven men and a commander. And for the most part, you mentioned before it had, you know, it had two conning towers, which Mm. allowed the crew to open up for air with two openings, it was about 21 by 16 inch openings. Yikes, no thanks. If you're claustrophobic, you don't wanna get in this thing. Now, um, for the most part, attached to it, or will be attached to it eventually, will be a 16 foot spar, Mm -hmm. which is made of, built of wood and covered by by copper, which would hold a single torpedo about the size of a beer keg, probably an IPA keg for you. With 135 pounds of black powder. That's what this thing's going to be. That is carrying. way too close for comfort. I mean, 16 feet nope. seems like a long a long way. But, geez, if I'm in that Hunley, I'd be like, you know, this is a little bit too close for, for comfort. Yeah, and and the average speed of this boat, of course, is going to depend on how fast you can turn the hand crank, is going to be four knots or 4.6 miles an hour. So mm-hmm. it goes about as fast as the uh, the red line does in Boston. <laughs> it, it's 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 a, it's a slow thing. So after a few after a few test runs with this new boat, they're going to hold a demonstration on July first of eighteen sixty three in Mobile Bay, where this fish boat is going to successfully dive under a coal barge, and they're going to actually sink it with the torpedo, mm-hmm. and it's going to work. The boat around this time is going to be renamed the H L Hunley after Horace Hunley. They're going to rename the boat now. Despite this being a privateer boat and not part of the Confederate Navy, and that's important we mentioned at the very beginning, yep. 
This is not a Confederate boat. You, you'll see C.S. Huntley sometimes, which is wrong. This is a privateer boat. This, yeah. is, a, this is private citizens who are doing this. This is, this is not the Navy. Now, while they're testing this out, there is going to be a group of, of rebel officers who are going to witness this demonstration I mentioned. And they were impressed at the Hunley, at this, in, at this invention. Witnessing this Hunley is going to be a guy, uh, Rear Admiral Franklin Buchanan and Brigadier General James E. Slaughter. Mm -hmm. These are Rebs officers who are watching this. Now, the Confederate brass is going to become very intrigued with this new weapon and how it could potentially help this never-ending problem yeah. of this Union blockade. But they felt Mobile wasn't, wasn't the place to do it. What they wanted was a bigger stage for this thing to try out, okay? It's more a psychological just as well as military now. Now, this is all taking place. You think of the calendar. What's going on in July of 1863, Mary? That's the Battle of Gettysburg as well as the fall of Vicksburg. Right. And so things aren't looking too good no. in, in the Confederacy at this moment. So the pressure was on Jeff Davis and the Confederacy was really, really tight at this point. And they were looking for anything positive to turn the tide of the war back in their favor. So two of the crew, Gus Whitney, the relative Eli Whitney mentioned, and Baxter Watson, they're going to travel to Charleston, South Carolina, and they're going to meet with Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant General Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard. Yes. They got the meeting because Beauregard was a fellow Mason as well as a member of the Knights Templar. That's cool. And so they got that's how they got the meeting with him. So they got the meeting. And Rear Admiral Buchanan, the one who walked the demonstration, had been promoting this thing for, for a little bit of time now. And he's going he to wire the potential of this boat to Beauregard. He's going to write, I am full, fully satisfied it can be used successfully in blowing up one or more of the enemy's ironclads in your harbor. So Beauregard's now, now he's, you know, he's intrigued now. Yeah. He's going to send a wire to Mobile. So to the other members, you know, but not, um, you know, not, not uh, Watson and Whitney. He's going to send to the other ones saying, mm -hmm. get your boat up to Charleston ASAFP. <laughs> and, and that's what he's going to say. Literally, they're going to put the Hunley on two rail cars and they're going to send it up to Charleston with hopes that this might be their their godsend to break this union blockade in Charleston. But Beauregard's a cautious fellow, Mary. Yes. You know how he is. OK. Before they launch this attack on, this on a Union ship, Beauregard is going to demand that they have a couple of test trials to make sure, hey, wouldn't it be cool if this thing worked yep. before we did it? And that's what he's going to do. Now, initial testing is going to take place, but it's going to be too slow for the Rebs. They, they want to go. They yep. want to go. So you know what they do? They seize the Hunley, and they, they make it. Confederate Navy property yes. temporarily. They're going to take it and they're going to put it under command of a guy named Lieutenant John Payne. Mm -hmm. And August 29th, 1863 now, the Hunley is going to be sitting in a place called Fort Johnson and it's going to be at the dock. And they're going to be preparing for an attack run when something bad goes down. Yeah. Yep. There's, uh, they're going to end up getting trapped inside. Uh, it sinks. Because and one of the theories, it's not known exactly what happened, but one of the survivors, there's going to be uh, four men that managed to get out, five drowned. But one of the survivors says that um, Payne, the captain, he accidentally stepped on the diving mechanism, which caused the submarine to dive while the hatches were still open. That is one theory behind what happened, but no one really knows. Um, but Payne, I think he does survive. 
this as well. Ain't actually, no one knows why it sank. There's a lot of different reasons why they think it sank. But the, 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 the theory you say, Payne was actually standing on top of the boat when it started to sink. Yeah. And he jumped off when it started to go oh under. So, so people think he stepped on he stepped on something and made it go, and that the hatch was open and filled with water and sank. But, but for the most part, they didn't really know. Um, he, but he survives. He's going to survive. Now, the Hunley is going to be sitting on the floor of Charleston Harbor for about two full weeks. Yeah. And somewhere around this time, Horace Hunley himself is going to arrive in Charleston. He is going to be mad, more pissed than you that you and me when I take the last beer out of the fridge. And you know what he wants? He wants his boat back. Yeah. He says, I want my boat back. You you took it. I want it. He's going to get it. Beauregard says, you know what? It's a death trap anyway. Yeah, take like, the frigate no. boat. Yeah, Beauregard wrote a you know? letter at one point saying like how this is worse for us than the enemy itself. Like he was like, this thing is a death trap. It's not going to work. And, and so he's like, he's like, this isn't going to work. You, t- you could take your little boat back. So with his boat back in his hands, Hunley is going to is going to send for the rest of his crew uh, back in Mobile, uh, back at that Park and Lions machine shop to come up to Charleston mm-hmm. and help him fix it. Now, it took until the fall when Horace Hunley was ready to uh, to put the Hunley back to sea again, right? October 15th, 1863, um, Hunley is going to schedule another test of this boat in Charleston Harbor. Mm-hmm. He's got it fixed. He thinks he knows what's going to happen. So he has a plan. Yeah. He planned to dive below a boat called the CSS Indian Chief. Which is going to that figure was, prominently in the final right. voyage. That was, it, was, it, was, it was on the harbor, and it was going to merge from the other side. And um, Hunley is going to basically personally captain this boat along with seven sailors that he needs to sail it. But Hunley is going to be, you know what? It's my boat. I'm going to captain yeah. this one this time. Yeah. I'm going to do it right. The Hunley leaves... It goes underwater, uh, under that Confederate Indian chief ship. Everyone's waiting for it to come up. Guess what happens? It doesn't, it doesn't come, come up. up. It doesn't come they up. They never see it again. It vanishes. Yep. So it disappears for almost three full weeks. Yep. And they find they find it, obviously, buried in the mud at the bottom of the harbor on November 7th. And it's like now, nose down. Um, and they have to use chains and ropes to hoist it to the surface and place it back on the dock. And the bodies were still on the ship. And when they found them, they they did record, like, you know, they wrote down what they saw. Uh, Thomas Park was found with his head in the aft conning tower. Hunley was still clutching a candle in the forward conning tower. Mm-hmm. And rescuers reported that the forward ballast tank had been left open, which allowed it to fill with water. So, again, it's another, like, just accident basically happened. And it was theorized that this time that Hunley himself might have forgotten to to close the valve or he had lost the wrench because it was found close to it and he might have just lost the wrench and didn't wasn't able to close it in time and the keel weights had been partially loosened which um it's theorized that the crew realized they were in danger but did not have time to save themselves so these guys unfortunately all drowned so they went underwater for lack of a better phrase forgot to shut the window yep and it sank and and the thing that's important is 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 the condition that they, they were clearly, the men all drowned. They were yeah. clearly trying to find, you mentioned before, uh, two of the men were in the conning tower, including Hunley. Hunley had a candle in his hand. And it, but it's clear by their positions that they very much knew mm-hmm. that things were going bad, that the boat was sinking, yeah. um, and they were trying to escape and ran out of time. Hunley obviously is going to be killed. And this is the second accident now within a six-week period 
which leads at this point to 13 deaths of, of, of men on this thing. And, um, and it's, it's one of those things that's, it's, you know, Hunley was, it's sad, but this, like I said before, this is a guy who wanted to be great, kept yeah. notes, everything he did. He's going to die clutching a candle drowning in a bolt that he tried to create yeah. to help save it. it. It's just the irony and the sadness of, of a lot of it's bad. But again, this did not, did not mean the end of the Hunley. The surviving men, either for credit to him or respect for Hunley or who knows why, probably the money. Yeah. They wanted to try again. Yeah. They, if you can't succeed, keep trying again. And they wanted to make sure that if they can, if they can make it just a few alterations and make it a little safer, they could try again. So George Dixon mm -hmm. and William Alexander, you know, they're going to actively to try to do this again. And, and they're going to, you know, they're going to use that singer torpedo, they're going, to attack, they're going to attach it to that 16-foot spar we talked about, and they're going to ram it into a blockade ship, and yeah. they're going to blow it up. And that, that's that's what they're going to do. Um, and it, it's it's one it's one of those things. But for like for whatever reason, you know, um, Beauregard, you know, he, he he's he's so he just, he's so reluctant. He, just, he, just, he is, but he he basically you know he says, all right, here's he's the kind of like okay, okay. fine. You know. He's like, we'll do it again. But here's what you got to do. You can't go underwater anymore. Yeah. So if you're going to use this boat and you're going to blow up the ship, you got to stay on the surface. Okay. You can't go underneath because no more. You lost 13 guys. This is what we're going to have yeah. to do. So Dixon, oh, yes, I'm. he's a, that's what, that's what they're going to do is now the captain of the Hunley of the Hunley crew. Obviously due to Horace Hunley's death and he's going to agree to this terms and he's going to begin to put a new crew together yeah. and to prepare for this new mission dixon and his crew are going to work relentlessly from mid-december of 63 until the really the end of january of 1864 yeah. and, and they're going to run several test runs at this point yeah. to make sure this thing and works. they're actually prevented from doing it sooner because the the seas were so rough that january that they couldn't get out and there's a letter that dixon wrote where he just he's you know basically like bored and saying like, God, are the seas ever going to be okay for us to be able to do this? Um, but as you said, they're running like, you know, test runs with it and stuff. And it's finally on February seventeenth that they have this like the sea is calm and they're like, oh, we can finally do this now. They finally can. And sitting offshore and wearing a huge target on its back was the USS House of Tonic. Now this is one of the Union's best warships. And during during this covert test run, the Hunley literally got so close to the house of tonic that they could hear the union men mm -hmm. singing on the yeah. deck rumor has it they got there late on a friday night they were saying calm maybe <laughs> that's what I, that that's what i heard i don't think that, that's what i heard and dixon wanted wanted to attack but to your point the water was a little choppy yeah so they wanted to it was a little too dangerous so they started to get a little more frustrated and he's going to write to his friend around then this is Dixon now, to catch the Atlantic Ocean smooth during the winter months is considerable of an undertaking as, as one that I wish to never undertake again. Yeah. They're getting frustrated. Yeah. Now, he knew that he'd have to wait to make his chance. And meanwhile, this house of tonic is still sitting offshore, just begging to be attacked. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about the U.S. house of tonic, it's, it's one of those ships that's blocking Charleston Harbor from supplies, but it's yeah. also shelling the city. This boat had a crew of 160 men. It had 11 guns, including a 100-pound parrot rifle. It was built in Charlestown Navy Yard here in Boston, Mary. I don't know if That's you know cool. that. It's, it's, it's a Boston boat. 
And, um, and for the most part, it was launched on September 11th of 1862 for Charleston, South Carolina, where it menaced the city from the day it yeah. got there. And it's gigantic. I mean, especially compared to the, the Hunley, like it's 207 feet long and 38 feet wide. Like it's a gigantic boat. So it would be, you know, literally figuratively a huge thing if the, uh, the Hunley could yeah. bring this ship down. Yeah. House of is commanded by a guy named Charles Whipple Pickering. That's his name. And he was part of the prestigious Pickering family from, from Salem, Massachusetts, of all places. If you know Salem's Pickering Wharf, it's mm-hmm. named after his family. Um, the ancestral home of the Pickering family was built in Salem in 1660 um, and is thought to be the oldest existing home still staying in America. And despite the family's prestige, the, uh, the Pickering family somehow escaped the Salem witch hysteria of 1692, mm-hmm. which it just did. Um, but it's an old blue blood New England family, this, this, this Pickering family. But anyway, to your point a few minutes ago, the weather starts to improve. Yeah. And on the night of February 17, 1864, Dixon and his crew, they knew this was their chance. They're rubbing their hands together. They're yeah. ready. Okay. It was a three-quarter full moon, not quite a full moon, and the sea was calm. So here we go. So the thing is, for this plan to work, Mary, the Dixon knew that stealth had to be the key, yep. but they also had to find their way back after they blew yes. this thing up. This was going to be out in the ocean. Um, the house of tonics five miles away. Yeah. So they had to do it. And to get back, Dixon's crew had a plan. Now, after they blew up the boat, they would open the conning tower. Remember, they're staying on the surface now. They're, yeah. not, they're not coming back up. A crew member would wave a light that was a blue light mm-hmm. from the conning tower at the shore at a place called Battery Marshall, which is on Sullivan's Island near mm-hmm. Charleston. They were going to get out. They were going to wave the light. Then they were going to light bonfires so it would give them a single fire to come back. Yeah. The blue light is, is what the whole thing was, and that's going to be a mystery for later on. Now, sometime after 8 p.m. on the 17th of February, the H.L. Hunley is going to make its way through Charleston Harbor towards the House of Tonic, which is floating offshore, Right. Now, it, you can just imagine, inside Dixon and his crew, they're pumping away in that yep. hand crank. They're going, and they're trying to keep it afloat. And you can imagine how nervous they are. And, oh, God. and Dixon, Dixon's sitting at the front with his legs crossed and his, his elbow on the table. Yep. That's how he's sitting, right? And they're cranking, they're cranking, they're cranking. Attached to this Hundley, at the end of that 16-foot spar, is that 135-pound Singer torpedo, and they're going to slowly approach the ship. Now, some of the crew, the crew members in the House of Tonic, they um, they reported seeing something on the water approaching, and think it was a porpoise. Yeah, all things, they're like, that's what oh, they thought. look, it's a porpoise. They, they they ignore it, but as it gets closer, they realize this, something strange a foot at the Circle K. This yes. this this, this yeah. thing's this this is weird. So, the men in Pickering's command realize this thing's a freaking ship yeah so they immediately start firing on this thing ping 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 the, the balls are firing off the um yep. off of the hunley right moments later boom yep. the single torpedo is going to contact with the ship and it's going to create a gigantic explosion that is going to leave a hole in the u.s warship it sank in less than five minutes yeah, that's quick. how fast this thing went down but there was it only killed- five of the crew drowned it did. The remaining 155 were hanging on for dear life onto the as it was sinking down. Don't forget, this is February water. Yeah. The water's 50 degrees out here. Oh, no, thank you. Yes. And so that's it. They're, 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 you know, another ship called the Canandagua 
is going to be nearby. It's going to mm -hmm. come over to the house, the second house of tonic, and it's going to able to rescue the remaining 155. Now for the Hunley, it was mission accomplished, right? Yep. But here's where the mystery of the HL Hunley really begins. And these are the stories people talk about at the bars in Charleston, mm -hmm. about why it's such a fascinating story. Both Union trips, Union troops on the ship, um, as, well, as well as some Confederate troops back at Battery Marshall on Solomon's Island, they claim that they saw that blue light, that blue signal light yeah. that was they were going to do afterwards. The one that Dixon promised to light after the explosion so the Hunley could find its way back, right? Robert Fleming, he's a member of the House of Tonic crew. He wrote, I saw a blue light on the water ahead of the Conondagua and on the starboard side of the House of Tonic. Okay, he says he saw the blue light. Yep. Fleming was the only member of the entire 50, 155 survivors to claim he saw it. He was the only one. Back on Sullivan's Island at Battery Marshall, Lieutenant Colonel Olin Miller Dantzler, he's a member of the 20th South Carolina, and former South Carolina State Senator, by the way, Mary, he's going to write, the signals agreed upon to be given in case the boat wished a light to be exposed at this post as a guide for its return was observed and answered. Mm. So what is he saying? He Dancer saying, I saw the freaking yeah. light. And so according to Dancer, he says he saw the blue light on that water on the horizon. Dancer, by the way, is going to be killed four months later by a canister ball uh, by Company L of the 1st Connecticut Heavy Artillery. He ain't oh. going to make it. But he that this is where he is at the time. Now, like Fleming, Dantzler was the only Confederate who reported seeing it. But he claims that he, they lit the bonfires on the shore, but, but the records show no fire was ever lit. So who the hell knows what he's thinking, yeah. right? A man named Jacob M. Cardozo, the editor of the Southern Patriot Evening News in Charleston, um, he basically corroborated Dancer's story. That's what the, that initially. But then he writes in 1866, the officer in command told Lieutenant Colonel Dantzler when they saw uh, when they bid each other goodbye, that if, it, that if he came off safe, he would show two blue lights. The lights never appeared. Yeah. So so regardless of what the story was with these lights, who the hell knows? Yeah. But the H.L. Hunley is not going to see the light of day again for 136 years yes. after this night. And right? it's actually I like I didn't realize this. I don't know why I didn't know this, because um, Clive Custler is one of my favorite authors. He is the man that in 1995 on May 3rd, he is going to find the Hunley after 15 years of searching. And for those who don't know, Clive Custer writes adventure novels. He wrote Raise the Titanic, Sahara, uh, Atlantis Found, whole series created the character Dirk Pitt. Um, he's the founder of NUMA, which the, it's escaping me for what that is, but it's basically salvage operations and finding lost shipwrecks. Um, and obviously the man had, he passed away a few years ago. Man had a ton of money, but his books are excellent. I, and they've got usually got some history in them, but he's the one that, that finds this um, finally finds the Hunley. And when they find it, it's on its starboard side with the bow pointing almost directly toward the Housatonic wreck um, and Sullivan's Island, and it's in a position where it looks um, almost like it's heading home. Well, the like thing it is, was headed that way, you know. And he, he finds this in, in uh, May 3rd, 1995. And you mentioned they've been looking at it for 15 years. Yep. But they've been looking for this boat as a damn it state. Oh, yeah, sand. exactly. Yeah. They, they, the Union Army, for the most part, the Union Navy, I mean, began searching for this strange boat almost immediately 
I mean, and they they came out came out empty after the war, empty. They could never find it, and he's going to use a magnetometer, and mm-hmm. he's going to find he's going to find it, and you know, it, it's 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 a fascinating story because you know they find they find the boat, they die about thirty feet in the water, yeah. um, and the thing that where where it surprised them was where the boat was found. Yeah. They'd been looking in the harbor because they assumed it blew it up and they sank on the way back. It was actually seaward, yeah. away from, in between, you know, between the House of Tonic, what was left of it, and France. I mean, it was out there. Yeah. But, so they, it was in the ocean, so it drifted. It was 300 meters east of where the explosion was, where it was ultimately mm-hmm. found. And considering where it was found, it, it, the Hunley clearly drifted out to sea before it sank and got buried. And, but it's funny though how, how things things never change. Yeah. When Custler finds the boat on May third, nineteen ninety five, the United States government claims it as spoils yes. of war. What the hell? Yeah. They take they're gonna but what they want and they do that because they want to make it public property. Yeah. They want this boat to be recovered and they want it to be put on display somewhere. And they also don't want it to be in a private collection. Also because it's a grave too like they're suspecting at that point, time turnout they're right well that, they're they, right. they weren't worried they weren't worried yeah. they weren't worried much about that well, they, well, they, that, they that wanted... was one of the things i read about it was that like you know if there are bodies on it then you know we don't right. want it to be looted we don't like do we make it into a grave and keep it down there but no as you said they decide they, they want to display it and yeah one of the things was who owns it and the u.s's gov- government is like we right. do it's ours so recovering it became a very important thing and, and it became a really a difficult task as it required assistance from the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. And the guy that, who answered the call was from a South Carolina state senator named Glenn McConnell. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who, who finally decided to do it. McConnell, by happenstance, is a member of the Sons of the Confederate Veterans Mary and has always been an advocate of flying the Confederate flag in South Carolina. Mm. But was ironic because he was the one with Governor Nikki Haley who had it taken down the Confederate flag in the state capital in 2015. So he kind of went the other way yeah. on that. But McConnell helped negotiate the contract, helped raise the Hunley, and an agreement was signed uh, but with a local businessman named Warren Lash. Mm-hmm. And uh, the work was basically uh, they work with the Department of the Navy as well as the National Park Service. It's international because they had like the Department of Natural Resources and Oceaneering International involved as well in it. Okay. Yeah, but they so they they they're gonna all come together to, for this plan to raise the Hunley, and because it, it's been underwater for over 135 years, obviously it was fragile. So mm-hmm. breaking this thing up was a very big possibility. Divers are gonna dig it out, and then um, and then a large truss is gonna be lowered, and they're gonna basically like a big magnet. They're gonna yep. stick it on top of the Hunley that's 30 feet deep, and they're gonna kind of slowly bring it up, right? Now, this is taking place on August 8th, 2000. We're not talking 200 years ago here. No. August 8th, 2000, this thing happens. It's national news. Um, all the locals are going to flood to the docks to watch the Hunley come out of the ocean while the work is being done at a distance. And after a few pucker effect moments from, yeah. the, from the crew that's out there, the Hunley is going to finally emerge from the water and it's be placed on a transport barge and brought to the Warren Lash Con- uh, Conservation Center and place in a tank containing 75,000 gallons of fresh water to mm-hmm. preserve it. So they get the boat in there. The next task is to open the Hunley yep. and find out what's inside. And what they found actually shocked them yep. to a point where it created a mystery that is still being talked about today. Yep. Yep. They're going to find the remains of the eight crew members all at their stations. The- 
they're going to be sitting, unlike the previous one where they were running for their lives, trying to help open the conning towers, trying to, these people were frozen in time. Mm. They were skeletons, but they were literally had their hands, the seven men, their hands on the hand cranks. Dixon still had his leg crossed and his arm up on the table. And they could not believe it, they, it was like someone just made them skeletons, but took a snapshot of exactly yeah. where yeah, they're they basically were. frozen, frozen in time, other than, as you said, being skeletons. And um, so obviously they have to take these guys out um, because they, they do bury them in 2000, April 17th, 2004. They are all buried. But before that time, they do research because not a lot is known about some of these guys who were on the crew of the Hunley. But you know, but you know what's cool about this though, is when they, when they started digging, getting the bodies out, they had to take it with silt. They had to clean yeah. them out. You know what they found in front of Dixon's body? They it's, found that dented gold coin. coin. They found his coin, my life preserver that was still visible yeah. on it. And if, and they also found his Freemason Royal Arch pocket watch. Wow. If you go to the, to, to the Lash Center, you can still visit this boat. You'll see those those artifacts. But he, you, they, it was they faithful right in front of him. his lucky charm was he still had right in front of him. Yeah, and they um, they do have like facial reconstructions of the guys too, which is really cool. Like you can view them online, and I think you can see yeah. them at the museum as well. And it's it's really eerie because they look so real. Um, and there's well, sto- the seven crew. The yeah. seven crew they never they never get their names told. I mean, Arnold Arnold Becker, Johan Carlson. Yep. Frank Collins, C. Lumpkin. They never knew his first name. They just called him C. Yeah. Lumpkin, but that's that's a true story. Augustus Miller, James Wicks, and Joseph Ridgeway. These mm-hmm. are the men that they found. Um, Ridgeway was the only man they could do DNA testing on to yeah. find out who he actually was. But they were able to find out who the other men were by where they sat in the sub. Yeah, and just by doing you know, they were able to do like the technology we have today, the forensic, you know, the friend, like they had a forensic guy from the Smithsonian looking at them. So for instance, um, so Joseph Ridgeway, just a little bit about each of these guys, because, you know, this is at the end of the day, there's humans that were on this part of this story. Joseph Ridgeway, he's second in command. Um, and he's born 1833 in Talbot County, Maryland. And he's the, he's the, his father was a sea captain. Um, he joins the Confederate States Navy in Richmond, Virginia on August 29th, 1862. And he's assigned to the CSS Indian Chief, which is the boat that, as we all know, the Hunley goes under in its when it sinks and kills the creator, right? Um, he was operating one of the cranks. Um, his other job was secure, to secure the aft hatch. He operated the aft pump and the flywheel. He's just over 30 years old when he dies on the Hunley. And one of the things that was found in him was the ID tag of a Union soldier named Ezra Chamberlain. And Ezra Chamberlain um, died at the Battle of Morris Island in 1863. It's not known why Ridgeway had this on him, but that's something that they found. That is another kind of the mysteries like, you know, it seems like as many questions as they're answering, you know, more question like more questions come up from this. Um, and his descendants are in Charleston for the burial. Um, the other one, uh, James A. Wicks. He was born in North Carolina around 1819. He's 5'10", um, which this kind of, disp- there's another guy, I'll get to him in a minute. Um, he's six feet, but uh, James A. Wicks is 5'10". He's a heavy tobacco user. This is what they've learned all from the forensic um, analysis they're able to do on these guys. He joined the Navy, the U.S. Navy in 1850. So he originally fights for the North. And then he goes and he join- He gets um, 
he's on a ship and it gets sank and he basically is like, I want to go home. So he crosses um, the lines in Virginia and he ends up enlisting in the Confederate Navy and he is also going to be part of the crew on the CSS Indian Chief. Um, He participates right before he's killed on the Hunley. He participates in a raid outside New Bern, North Carolina, which was to for the destruction of a Union ship. And he arrives back in Charleston just days before the Hunley's final voyage. He's in the sixth crank position. um, And so in case of an emergency, he was to release the aft keel block. And his descendants were also at the burial as well. Miller. I don't think his is Miller's first name known. Yeah, it was Augustus. Augustus Miller, okay. Um, He's the most elusive member of the crew. Um, He stands 5'8 tall. He's from Europe, but he had been in America for a relatively short period of time. He's probably one of the older crew members, between 40, 45 years of age. Uh, Just from the forensic analysis they did, it was... uh, he led quite a harsh life. He'd have evidence of fractures on his ribs, legs, and skull. He was a heavy smoker, and he was suffering from the beginning stages of arthritis. He carried a wooden pipe with him, although couldn't smoke it on the Hunley, but it was found when it was excavated. It was still still with him, and he's in the fifth crank position. Um, and then you have J.F. Carlson, again, another European. He's between 20 and 23 years old when he's on the Hunley. Um, he's 5'10". He's a helmsman on the boat Jefferson Davis for a while. Um, And then he was with the German artillery when he's recruited to be on the crew of the Hunley. Um, And he's in the fourth crank handle position. And then Frank Collins, he's six feet tall. So this is really what breaks the myth of that the crew all had to be short in stature. That this guy is like, he's having to go into this like little boat that's like only four feet tall and he's six feet tall. He mans the third crank. And he had tailor notches in his teeth, meaning that he used his teeth for some activity involving like needles. So he could have worked with shoes or clothes or something like that. It's not really known. It is known he's from Virginia and was raised in Fredericksburg. Um, and he sat in the most da- one of the most dangerous positions on the boat, apparently. Uh, Lumpkin, which, uh, or C. Lumpkin, uh, where mm-hmm. they definitely know his last name. Um, he's the, probably the oldest crew member. He stands around 5'7", probably about 45 years old, most likely born in Europe. His main duty was just cranking the handle to help power the boat along. And um, he also had worn notches in his teeth, which was evidence of him smoking a pipe. And he always carried it with him. Obviously, like the other guy, you can't smoke it when you're on board the Hunley. But he had it with him. Um, And found next to him were also a sewing kit and a pocket knife, which are believed to be his. He's also um, had been a crew member on the CSS Indian Chief. And then um, Arnold Becker, as you mentioned, not, again, not much is known about this guy, um, but he joined the Confederate States Navy. He worked on a boat called the General Polk, which the crew had to set it on fire because they were going, it was going to be captured and they didn't want it to be captured. Um, mm. He stood around 5'5 five five and was around 20 years old. He's third in command and he's seated directly behind Dixon and he operated the bellows and the snorkel tubes Um, which was like the Hunley's air circulation system that allowed the crew to breathe. And he also managed the forward pump. And he had to check the valve positions and empty the forward ballast tank if it was needed. So these guys all had different jobs that they did. And we've already talked a lot about Dixon, who was the captain. He's found with that gold coin. But the other thing they discovered that there was enough of him left, which which sounds really bad, to see that he definitely had been wounded on his thigh. Um, yeah. And they, that, as you said, that's that's his wound from the Battle of Shiloh. So, you know, as tragic as it is what happened with when it was found, 
we're able to do all this forensic work on them and kind of get a story behind these guys. We're able to reconstruct what they look like because, um, you know, there is a picture of Hunley, but I don't know if there's pictures of these other guys around, but they're able to do the, the facial reconstructions. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, you can see them on their website. So these guys all have a story and they're all buried in uh, Charleston where they were buried in 2000. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's no known photographs of the other seven, uh, four Europeans. A lot of them came from backgrounds unknown. Who the hell knows they came from, but the thing about it and this, the thing that's kind of haunted the people who started the Hunley for a while is what killed them. Mm-hmm. Because you said before they opened the boat up and they're still sitting there as if they're just all asleep and they never moved. It was always assumed that the explosion blew a hole in the submarine, and which led to it sinking and killing all eight men who drowned in the harbor. That was always – they never found it. Um, and a lot's changed. There's a book that came out called In the Waves, mm-hmm. which was published in 2020 by a Ph.D. scientist from Michigan and Duke University named Rachel Lance. Mm-hmm. And she wrote a very compelling case that the victims of the H.L. Hunley didn't drown but died of something called blast trauma. And so she lays out the case and and it it says that when that 135 pound torpedo exploded, the blast waves basically killed the men almost instantly where they sat and the current floated the Hunley seaward where it was eventually, eventually found. But, you know, this considering there was no evidence of any trauma of any crew member trying to open the conning tower, trying to escape, it seems to make to make as much sense possible, um, and, and, and it all appears that to make the most sense that this, there's that no one really knows that death is still a mystery. But that's the most common thing. Mm-hmm. If but here's the thing though: if they died instantly, that removes that suspicion about those blue lights they talked about, yeah. right? And that's the whole thing. But who you know who knows? The death of the crew of the H.L. Hunley will always be one of those stories in history that will always be debated, regardless. And I'm telling you, you sit at those bars in Charleston. This is the stuff they talk about. Mm-hmm. They talk. It's not who broke first, first of the 11th, yep. Mary. It's what killed Dixon and what killed Ridgeway. What, and they talk about it, and people get really passionate. Now, what's interesting was you mentioned the funeral. And the last orders that was given to the Hunley and to those around them who played a part in before it was launched, mm-hmm. these orders were read by PGT Beauregard before the mission started and his quote was pay proper tribute to the gallantry and patriotism of its crew and officers and 140 years later on april 17 2004 this order from Beauregard was carried out when those eight crew members of the hl hunley were buried at magnolia cemetery in charleston south carolina in full military honors uh, they were buried next to the other 13 men mm-hmm. who died in the, the expedition, lost their lives in previous Hunley missions, including H.L. Hunley himself. Um, the funeral procession uh, that day in Charleston, there was 50 Freemasons in the procession That's from so Alabama cool. and South Carolina, as well as hundreds of other Masons lined up the streets for this funeral. Brother George E. Dixon was giving a full Masonic funeral, which was performed by the master of the mobile lodge, mobile lodge number 40, a guy named Wayne E. Simon, uh, using the funeral rite published by the Baltimore Masonic Convention of 1843. You know what that is? You know what that is, okay? You can still visit the H.L. Hunley today as, as well as some of those recovered artifacts we talked about, such as Dixon's bent gold coin, that royal arch watch bar of the whole deal at the Warren Lash Convention Center, 
in North Charleston. They do tours on weekends. Definitely go and check it mm-hmm. out. But here's the thing for me, okay? The coolest thing about this, if, if you go to visit Charleston, you go yeah. and visit them, okay? One of the coolest things you'll ever that are attached to this story, in my opinion, is if you go down to Battery Marshall on Sullivan's Island every year on February 17th at around 8.30 p.m., and you look out in the harbor, you'll see a really cool reenactment. Every single year on that date and at that time, a small boat goes out to the site of the sinking of the USS House of Tonic. You know what they do? They raise that blue light. That's so cool. They, ra- they raise the blue light that it's visible for all to see on the shore. Whether or not the crew actually was able to give that final signal, it isn't known. But Charleston makes sure every single year on that date that a blue light is seen on the horizon to honor those who lost their lives in the HL Hunger. It is one of the coolest things you'll ever see if you go to see it. That's very, very cool. But it's a great story. You know, Mm -hmm. it's one of those ones that, um, it's one of those ones you you go to, especially if you go to a place like Charleston, they, they love to talk about it. But it's fascinating, and it's a and it's a mystery, and it's it's great they finally found it because up until the mid nineties, um, it fell off the planet. Yeah, and there's and, so, and, yeah, and I was gonna say they're still researching these guys too, trying to find whatever they can about them from genealogy records, from census, and as more stuff you know, as as they find more stuff, they can find out more about these guys to tell more of their story. Like some of them, we don't know a lot about them. We don't even know where they were from. We just know that they weren't you know a lot of them were Europeans and all that. But it's still it's still interesting and definitely I haven't read it yet, but I want to read Rachel Lance's book. I read a paper that she wrote. Um, and in that paper, she talks about all the experiments they had to do to come to this conclusion that they had died. Um, basically from it's like a percussion, like the, the medical term for it is lethal pulmonary trauma, which basically does nothing to your skeleton, but it's just like your heart just stops. And it was, she, she concluded that they probably died instant, like pretty much instantly when it happened. And judging by what it looked like, uh, it's pretty clear. Now, if you go visit the Huntley, you go to the Lash, the Lash Convention Center, you go visit it, and you see how small it is, mm-hmm. just picture eight men sitting in there working a hand crank, getting ready to attach a bomb to a 16-foot spar. Think of the stones you would have to carry oh, yeah. to get inside that boat. Um, but then again... Um, these men, these eight men, as well as the other 13, they're, they're known to history. But again, these are people who, um, for whatever whatever they felt they were fighting for, they put their lives on the line to yeah. do it. And the thing that remember, most of these guys were not even military. They were no. private citizens. And they, yeah. they did it because either for patriotism or for money, whatever it was, they did it. And by the end, they wanted to make sure they could try to, they could try to make sure they lived the best way that H.L. Hunley would have. They wanted his boat to succeed so bad because oh, yeah. he put his whole life into it. Um, he didn't see, he didn't live to see that the final thing. Uh, he would have been on the boat realistically, and probably. He probably obviously would have died. But um, but they wanted to make sure they uh, they did what they could to, uh, mm-hmm. to honor his his memory, his boat. Yeah. If you go there, you can go to Magnolia Cemetery. They have a nice setup. You can see the, all the graves laid out. Um, and it's a great place to go. Mm-hmm. So if you get a chance to go, definitely do it. So I think. Um, that's a good place to drop us off yep. right now, Mary. I think we did, did these guys justice. But what's coming up for us? Yeah, well, we got to sit down at the old headquarters and talk about some more episode <laughs> ideas um, again, which hopefully we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We will be having um, our usual YouTube live stream will be this Sunday um, at 
10 o'clock Eastern time. We're going to be bringing our round table back hopefully soon. Um, as well as, um, our book club for 2024, which we have some books in mind for that, that we need to announce soon as well. Announce that soon. Trivia coming up soon. We got a lot of fun to do. So hopefully you can join us on our, our YouTube live on Sunday, like Mary said at 10 o'clock and away we go. All right. So any final words from you, Fincheru on this Friday night here in cold Plymouth, Massachusetts? Well, thanks for bringing it like you always do. Oh, I'm happy, thank happy you to, to do it, so. all our listeners for being with us for these 122 episodes. Uh, whether you're watching them on YouTube or listening to them, the audio version, we thank you very, very much for your support, as well as to the people that come out and join us on our YouTube live streams on Saturday or Sundays whenever we do them. That's, that's always a great time, too. All right. All right, guys. Well, we appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you all, Mary, as they say, on the other side. See you all later. Go be safe. Bye.